0: section 11 of beacon lights of history volume 7 great women by john lord this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand sarah duchess of marlborough part two meanwhile a renewed war was declared against louis the fourteenth on account of his determination to place his grandson on the throne of spain the tories were bitterly opposed to this war of the spanish succession as unnecessary expensive And ruinous to the development of national industry they were also jealous of Marlborough whose power they feared would be augmented by the war as the commander-in-chief of the United Dutch and English forces and the result was indeed what they feared his military successes were so great in this war that on his return to England he was created a Duke and soon after received unusual grants from Parliament controlled by the Whigs which made him the richest man in England as well as the most powerful politically yet even up to this time the relations between his wife and the queen were apparently most friendly but soon after this the haughty favourite became imprudent in the expressions she used before her royal mistress she began to weary of the drudgeries of her office as mistress of the robes and turned over her duties partially to a waiting woman who was destined ultimately to supplant her in the royal favour the queen was wounded to the quick by some things that the duchess said and did which she was supposed not to hear or see for the duchess was now occasionally careless as well as insolent the queen was forced to perceive that the duchess disdained her feeble intellect and some of her personal habits and was moreover hostile to her political opinions and she began to long for an independence she had never truly enjoyed but the duchess intoxicated with power and success did not see the ground on which she stood yet if she continued to rule her mistress it was by fear rather than love About this period, 1706, the struggles and hostilities of the Whigs and Tories were at their height. We have in these times but a feeble conception of the bitterness of the strife of these two great parties in the beginning of the 18th century. It divided families and filled the land with slanders and intrigues. The leaders of both parties were equally aristocratic and equally opposed to reform. Both held the people in sovereign contempt. The struggle between them was simply a struggle for place and emolument. The only real difference in their principles was that one party was secretly in favor of the exiled family and was opposed to the French war, and the other was more jealously Protestant and was in favor of the continuance of the war. The Tories accused Marlborough of needlessly prolonging the war in order to advance his personal interests, from which charge it would be difficult to acquit him. One of the most prominent leaders of the Tories was Harley, afterwards Earl of Oxford, who belonged to a Puritan family in Hertfordshire, and was originally a Whig he entered Parliament in the early part of the reign of William. Macaulay, who could see no good in the Tories, in his violent political prejudices, maintained that Harley was not a man of great breadth of intellect, and exerted an influence in Parliament disproportionate to his abilities. But he was a most insidious and effective enemy. He was sagacious enough to perceive the growing influence of men of letters, and became their patron and friend. He advanced the fortunes of Pope, a and prior, he purchased the services of swift the greatest master of satire blended with bitter invective that england had known harley was not eloquent in speech but he was industrious learned exact and was always listened to with respect nor had he any scandalous vices he could not be corrupted by money and his private life was decorous he abhorred both gambling and drunkenness the fashionable vices of that age he was a refined social and cultivated man this statesman perceived that it was imperatively necessary for the success of his party to undermine the overpowering influence of the duchess of marlborough with the queen he detested her arrogance disdain and grasping ambition moreover he had the firm conviction that england should engage only in maritime war he hated the dutch and moneyed men and dissenters of every sect although originally one of them And when he had obtained the leadership of his party in the House of Commons, he brought to bear the whole force of his intellect against both the Duke and Duchess. It was by his intrigues that the intimate relations between the Duchess and the Queen were broken up, and that the Duke became unpopular. The great instrument by which he effected the disgrace of the imperious Duchess was a woman who was equally his cousin and the cousin of the Duchess, and for whom the all-powerful favorite had procured the office of chamberwoman and dresser in other words a position which in an inferior rank is called that of lady's-maid for the duchess was wearied of constant attendance on the queen and to this woman some of her old duties were delegated the name of this woman was abigail hill she had been in very modest circumstances but was a person of extraordinary tact prudence and discretion though very humble in her address qualities the reverse of those which marked her great relative nor did the proud duchess comprehend miss hill's character and designs any more than the all-powerful madame de montespan comprehended those of the widow scarron when she made her the governess of her children but harley understood her and their principles and aims were in harmony abigail hill was a bigoted tory and her supreme desire was to ingratiate herself in the favor of her royal mistress especially when she was tired of the neglect or annoyed by the railleries of her exacting favorite by degrees the humble lady's maid obtained the same ascendancy over the queen that had been exercised by the mistress of the robes in the one case secured by humility assiduous attention and constant flatteries in the other obtained by talent and brilliant fascinations abigail was ruled by harley sarah was ruled by no one but her husband who understood her caprices and resentments and seldom directly opposed her Moreover, she was a strong-minded woman, who could listen to reason after her fits of passion had passed away. The first thing of note which occurred, showing to the Duchess that her influence was undermined, was a refusal of the Queen to allow Lord Cowper, the Lord Chancellor, to fill up the various livings belonging to the Crown, in spite of the urgent solicitations of the Duchess. This naturally produced a coolness between Mrs. Freeman and Mrs. Morley, harley was now the confidential adviser of the queen and counseled her to go alone that is to throw off the shackles which she had too long ignominiously worn and anne at once appointed high church divines tories of course to the two vacant bishoprics the understream of faction was flowing unseen but deep and strong which the infatuated duchess did not suspect The great victory of Ramillies, 1706, gave so much éclat to Marlborough that the outbreak between his wife and the queen was delayed for a time. That victory gave a new lease of power to the Whigs. Harley and St. John, the secret enemies of the duke, welcomed him with their usual smiles and flatteries, and even voted for the erection of Blenheim, one of the most expensive palaces ever built in England. Meanwhile, Harley pursued his intrigues to effect the downfall of the Duchess. Miss Hill, unknown to her great relative and patroness, married Mr. Masham, a query to Prince George, who was shortly after made a brigadier-general and peer. Nothing could surpass the indignation of the Duchess when she heard of this secret marriage. That it should be concealed from her while it was known to the Queen, showed conclusively that her power over Anne was gone. And still further, she perceived that she was supplanted by a relative whom she had raised from obscurity she now comprehended the great influence of harley at court and also the declining favor of her husband it was a bitter reflection to the proud duchess that the alienation of the queen was the result of her own folly and pride rather than of royal capriciousness she now paid no inconsiderable penalty for the neglect of her mistress and the gratification of her pride pride has ever been the chief cause of the downfall of royal favorites it ruined louvois wolsey and thomas cromwell it broke the chain which bound louis the fourteenth to the imperious montespan it ever goes before destruction the duchess of marlborough forgot that her friend mrs morley was also her sovereign the queen she might have retained the queen's favor to the end in spite of political opinions but she presumed too far on the ascendency which she had enjoyed for nearly thirty years there is no height from which one may not fall and it takes more ability to retain a proud position than to gain it there are very few persons who are beyond the reach of envy and attraction and the loftier the position one occupies the more subtle numerous and desperate are one's secret enemies the duchess was not however immediately disgraced as the expression is in reference to great people who lose favor at court she still retained her offices and her apartments in the royal palace she still had access to the queen she was still addressed as my dear mrs freeman but mrs masham had supplanted her and harley through the influence of the new favorite ruled at court the disaffection which had long existed between the secretary of state and the lord treasurer deepened into absolute aversion it became the aim of both ministers to ruin each other The queen now secretly sided with the Tories, although she had not the courage to quarrel openly with her powerful ministers, or with her former favorite. Nor was the great breach made public. But the angry and disappointed duchess gave vent to her wrath and vengeance in letters to her husband and in speech to Godolphin. She entreated them to avenge her quarrel. She employed spies about the queen. She brought to bear her whole influence on the leaders of the Whigs she prepared herself for an open conflict with her sovereign for she saw clearly that the old relations of friendship and confidence between them would never return a broken friendship is a broken jar it may be mended but never restored its glory has departed and this is one of the bitterest experiences of life on whomsoever the fault may be laid the fault in this instance was on the side of the duchess and not on that of her patron The arrogance and dictation of the favorite had become intolerable. It was as hard to bear as the insolence of a petted servant. The Duke of Marlborough and Lord Godolphin took up the quarrel with zeal. They were both at the summit of power, and both were leaders of their party. The victories of the former had made him the most famous man in Europe, and the greatest subject in England. They declined to serve their sovereign any longer unless Harley were dismissed from office, and the able secretary of state was obliged to resign but anne could not forget that she was forced to part with her confidential minister and continued to be ruled by his counsels she had secret nocturnal meetings in the palace with both harley and mrs masham to the chagrin of the ministers the court became the scene of intrigues and cabals not only was harley dismissed but also henry st john afterwards the famous lord bolingbroke the intimate friend and patron of pope he was secretary of war and was a man of great ability of more genius even than harley He was an infidel in his religious opinions and profligate in his private life like harley he was born of puritan parents and like him repudiated his early principles he was the most eloquent orator in the house of commons which he entered in 1700 as a whig at that time he was much admired by marlborough who used his influence to secure his entrance into the cabinet his most remarkable qualities were political sagacity and penetration into the motives and dispositions of men he gradually went over to the tories and his alliance with harley was strengthened by personal friendship as well as political sympathies he was the most interesting man of his age in society witty bright and courtly in conversational powers he was suppressed only by swift meanwhile the breach between the queen and the duchess gradually widened as the former grew cold in her treatment of her old friend she at the same time annoyed her ministers by the appointment of tory bishops to the vacant sees she went so far as to encroach on the prerogatives of the general of her armies by making military appointments without his consent this interference marlborough properly resented but his influence was now on the wane as the nation wearied of a war which as it seemed to the tories he needlessly prolonged moreover the duke of somerset piqued by the refusal of the general to give a regiment to his son withdrew his support from the government the duke of shrewsbury and other discontented noblemen left the whig party The unwise prosecution of Dr. Chavarell for a seditious libel united the whole Tory party in a fierce opposition to the government, which was becoming every day more unpopular. Harley was indefatigable in intrigues. He fasted with religious zealots and feasted with convivial friends. He promised everything to everybody, but kept his own counsels. In such a state of affairs with the growing alienation of the queen it became necessary for the proud duchess to resign her offices but before doing this she made one final effort to regain what she had lost she besought the queen for a private interview which was refused again importuned her majesty sullenly granted the interview but refused to explain anything and even abruptly left the room and was so rude that the duchess burst into a flood of tears which she could not restrain not tears of grief but tears of wrath and shame Thus was finally ended the memorable friendship between Mrs. Morley and Mrs. Freeman, which had continued for twenty-seven years. The Queen and Duchess never met again. Soon after, in 1710, followed the dismissal of Lord Godolphin as Lord Treasurer, who was succeeded by Harley, created Earl of Oxford. Sunderland, too, was dismissed, and his post of Secretary of State was given to St. John, created Viscount Bolingbroke lord cowper resigned the seals and sir simon harcourt an avowed adherent of the pretender became lord chancellor the earl of rochester the bitterest of all the tories was appointed president of the council the duke of marlborough however was not dismissed from his high command until 1711 one reason for his dismissal was that he was suspected of aiming to make himself supreme on his return from the battle of malpalquet he had coolly demanded to be made captain general for life such a haughty demand would have been regarded as dangerous in a great crisis it was absurd when public dangers had passed away even lord cowper his friend the chancellor shrunk from it with amazement such a demand would have been deemed arrogant in wallenstein amid the successes of gustavus adolphus no insignificant cause of the triumph of the tory party at this time was the patronage which the tory leaders extended to men of letters and the bitter political tracts which these literary men wrote and for which they were paid in that age the speeches of members of parliament were not reported or published and hence had but little influence on public opinion even ministers resorted to political tracts to sustain their power or to undermine that of their opponents and these were more efficient than speeches in the house of commons bolingbroke was the most eloquent orator of his day but no orators arose in anne's reign equal to pitt and fox in the reign of george the third hence political leaders availed themselves of the writings of men of letters with whom they freely associated and this intercourse was deemed a great condescension on the part of nobles and cabinet ministers in that age great men were not those who were famous for genius but those who were exalted in social position still genius was held in high honor by those who controlled public affairs whenever it could be made subservient to their interests foremost among the men of genius who lent their pen to the service of nobles and statesmen was jonathan swift clergyman poet and satirist but he was more famous for his satire than for his sermons or his poetry everybody winced under his terrible assaults he was both feared and hated especially by the great hence they flattered him and courted his society he became the intimate friend and companion of oxford and bolingbroke he dined with the prime minister every sunday and in fact as often as he pleased he rarely dined at home and almost lived in the houses of the highest nobles who welcomed him not only for the aid he gave them by his writings but for his wit and agreeable discourse At one time he was the most influential man in England, although poor and without office or preferment. He possessed two or three livings in Ireland, which together brought him about five hundred pounds, on which he lived, generally in London, at least when his friends were in power. They could not spare him, and he was entrusted with the most important secrets of state. His insolence was superb. He affected equality with dukes and earls. He condescended to accept their banquets. The first time that Bolingbroke invited him to dine, his reply was that, if the queen gave his lordship a dukedom and the garter and the treasury also, he would regard them no more than he would a groat. This assumed independence was the habit of his life. He indignantly returned one hundred pounds to Harley, which the minister had sent him as a gift. He did not work for money, but for influence and a promised bishopric. But the queen, a pious woman of the conventional school, would never hear of his elevation to the bench of bishops, in consequence of the tale of a tub, in which he had ridiculed everything sacred and profane. He was the bitterest satirist that England has produced. The most his powerful friends could do for him was to give him the deanery of St. Patrick's in Dublin, worth about eight hundred pounds a year. Swift was first brought to notice by Sir William Temple, in the reign of William and Mary, he being Sir William's secretary. At first he was a Whig and a friend of Addison, but neglected by marlborough and godolphin who cared but little for literary genius he became a tory in seventeen ten he became associated with harley st john atterbury and prior in the defence of the tory party but he never relinquished his friendship with addison for whom he had profound respect and admiration swift's life was worldly but moral he was remarkably temperate in eating and drinking and parsimonious in his habits one of his most bitter complaints in his letters to stella to whom he wrote every day was of the expense of coach hire in his visits to nobles and statesmen it would seem that he creditably discharged his clerical duties he attended the daily service in the cathedral and preached when his turn came he was charitable to the poor and was a friend to ireland to whose people he rendered great services from his influence with the government he was beloved greatly by the irish nation in spite of his asperity parsimony and bad temper he is generally regarded by critics as a selfish and heartless man and his treatment of the two women whose affections he had gained was certainly inexplicable and detestable his old age was miserable and sad he died insane having survived his friends and his influence but his writings have lived his gulliver's travels is still one of the most famous and popular books in our language in spite of its revolting and vulgar details swift like addison was a great master of style clear forcible and natural and in vigor he surpassed any writer of his age end of section 11